Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Um, it's our regular Monday night Against the Stream class. You're here for the first time, welcome to you. A uh, big part of Buddhist practice is developing community. Not so easy to do while we're all uh, staying home, but uh, we continue to have our Zoom community. And uh, thank you for joining us. Welcome to everybody. We'll begin with a period of meditation. I'll offer some meditation instructions and then we'll have some discussion, Buddhist lecture, Dharma talk, and discussion after the meditation practice. So let's jump right into sitting. Find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed. Arrange your body so that you feel comfortable to begin with. And uh, accepting from the beginning that discomfort will likely be part of your practice and that's uh, actually a useful part of our practice. It's okay to be uncomfortable. One of the skills we are trying to learn how to be uncomfortable and remain kind, friendly to it. As you're ready, allow your eyes to be closed. making any adjustments necessary to the posture. Spine erect, body upright. Hands resting in the lap and the knees. Releasing any unnecessary tension, let the body hang loosely around the upright skeleton. Release any tension in the jaw or face, shoulders, chest. Breathing in, feel the sensations that the breath creates at the nostrils. And breathing out, soften your belly. Let go of any held tension, tightness, resistance in the midsection in the belly. Mindfulness practice is the technique. Mindfulness is present time, non-judgmental, investigative awareness with a quality or an attitude 
of kindness and acceptance. We're not trying to make any particular experiences happen. I'm trying to create any special states of mind, but trying to see clearly and learn to respond wisely to the moment-to-moment -moment reality. It's helpful if we relax into the posture, releasing tension, and also helpful, I find, to intentionally establish a inner attitude of friendliness, of kindness and acceptance. The intention to accept ourselves just as we are, this mind, body. And with the intention to be kind, accepting, forgiving, directing our full attention into the body, becoming mindful of the posture, uh, present time sensations in the body. allowing the body to breathe all by itself, its own natural rhythm, no need to control the breath. But receiving the breath with awareness, the rising and falling of the belly, expanding and contracting of the chest, And the sensations created by the air as it enters and exits the nostrils.
of course, the mind continues to think, sounds, smell, taste, and sight, all of the sense doors, the way that we know the world continue. We choose to let everything be in the background as we place our attention on the breath, the foreground of our attention, of our experience. The Buddha's straightforward instruction is breathing in, one knows I breathe in. Breathing out, one knows I breathe out. So give the breath your full attention, let everything else be in the background. As much as you can, and every time your attention is drawn away from the breath back into thinking, remember the intention of friendliness, of kindness, of non-judgment, and simply choose to return to the breath, come back over and over gently, but persistently reconnecting with the sensations created by the breath.
You can continue to use the breath as the anchor to the present. It's always happening here, creating sensations. The breath itself can teach us so much about impermanence. The Buddha encourages a more inclusive practice to include your whole being, your whole body. What other sensations other than the breath are present? And what are we experiencing at the sense door? Sounds, both internal and external images. Smell, taste. Emotion. Thought. The quality of investigation, of inquiry, of what's happening right now in my body, in my heart, in my mind. Without judgment, just turning towards our experience. And it becomes clear that some of our experience is perceived as pleasant, pleasant thoughts or sensations. Perhaps pleasant sounds arising in your environment. And some of the experiences clearly unpleasant, unpleasant sensations in the body, discomfort. Difficult thoughts, unpleasant fears, worries. Difficult emotions. And some of our experience, perhaps much of our experience is neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Being mindful of what's happening 
moment to moment, the breath, coming and going, sounds, arising and passing, thoughts proliferating through the mind. trying to develop a relationship with what's arising that is not entangled, not taking it all so personally. The non-judgmental awareness of what's happening. 
but also that's not detached, not a detached observer, but a participation and engagement with what's happening in your heart and your mind, your body, moment to moment. If it's painful, it's calling for compassion. We learn compassion by first learning to tolerate discomfort, learning to be uncomfortable and just soften into it, sit with it. When our experience is pleasant, we have the tendency to get attached, to cling, to crave. Our participation in mindfulness is to let go. Inclining the heart, the mind, towards the kindest thing that we can do, which is non-attached appreciation. Let it go. Nothing's worth clinging to. Because nothing's worth suffering about. over and over softening where we're becoming tense in the belly, the jaw, eyes, shoulder, softening is a physical act of letting go. over and over disengaging from the stories in the mind, the fears, the memories, unentangling our identity from what the mind is doing, 
are just plans and memories, hopes and fears. Some thoughts that arise are wise thoughts worth contemplating. Some thoughts that arise are suffering. Disengage. Return to the breath.
for the last couple of minutes. Extending loving kindness and attitude of goodwill, friendliness, outward in all directions. As we reflect on the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of existence, all of the difficulties and suffering, confusion, as well as all of the beauty, happiness, joy that exists in this world. Extending loving kindness to all living beings, those nearby and far away. The wish for ease, the wish for happiness, for freedom. May all living beings find the willingness to do what needs to be done, to train their own hearts and minds in the skills and the wisdom that will end suffering. May all beings be at ease through their own efforts, their own actions. And remember that you are part of the all. Doing what needs to be done in your own life to end suffering. Include yourself with the wishes for ease, for happiness, for freedom. As I promised last week, I'd follow up with um, some more teachings tonight on the Buddha's teachings on ethics, on the uh, wise and ethical way to 
live. But before I jump into that, we'll talk about the um, wise action, <clears throat> the five precepts. Before I get into that topic, I just had a couple of reflections, brief reflections I wanted to share about um, the opportunity that we have um, with the, uh, anyways, here in Los Angeles with the increased um, restrictions. And I know there's people from all over the country joining us, probably uh, other countries as well. Um, so it may or may not be like that where you are, um, but I'm here in, in Los Angeles where um, there's increased uh, restrictions on our activities and gatherings and uh, no, no more people coming to live to meditation and um, restaurants closing and, um, you know, even the outdoor dining and a whole list of more in, in, uh, limitations on our activities. And I want to uh, encourage everyone to um, frame it as an opportunity that um, it's an opportunity for maybe for more time for meditation practice, for um, some renunciation practice, which is kind of what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, letting go of some of the ordinary activities and an opportunity for boredom and loneliness perhaps, and um, last year, uh, I, I talked about this a lot in the early part of the year, last year I was with uh, one of my teachers, Ajahn Amaro in Thailand, and um, a couple times he gave this talk about the importance and the opportunity and the, the necessity for us on this Buddhist path to develop uh, the skill of being lonely <laughs> and to really like put that on you, like your aspiration. Like I want to get good at being lonely. I want to develop that skill, not always avoiding my loneliness or going too quickly to what turn on Netflix or pick up a book or you know, scroll on social media or something, but just to have it as part of our practice to be like, yeah, kind of, I'm not only alone, but I'm uh, alone and craving connection. And I'm just going to be with it. I'm just going to be with that feeling and investigate it and bring mindfulness to loneliness and make, make friends with it rather than it's the enemy that we always have to be escaping from, always on the run. <laughs> um, as the world gets quieter uh, with increased uh, isolation and perhaps loneliness is increasing for many people and taking it as part of our practice. And as well as um, One of the other things he said was um, also learning to, uh, to be hungry. 
which is an interesting uh, practice, especially coming from Thanksgiving and, <laughs> uh, you know, the sort of national overeating day. Um, and as a practice, some renunciation around food, around uh, that it's okay to, to be hungry, to be disciplined, to not um, be constantly snacking or, uh, you know, and the monks have a whole practice where they actually don't eat any food after midday. And he was talking about how much he's learned from that kind of renunciation and sitting with unpleasant sensations of hunger without needing to go and satisfy those desires and just being with it. Um, I'd also, he didn't talk about this because he's a monk and polite, but I'd also add, uh, you know, that it's okay to be horny and to have sexual desires arising without acting on them. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to be celibate, but when we commit to the path and to the practice of mindfulness, part of what we're developing is uh, some discipline and some renunciation and changing our relationship to craving and desire and you know, learning to be uncomfortable and learning to be lonely and learning to be hungry and learning to be horny and it all being okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with healthy sexuality and we're gonna talk a little bit about sex tonight and nothing wrong with masturbation and self-love satisfaction, um, no judgment at all, but a great opportunity to sometimes choose to not indulge in food or in uh, entertainment or into sexuality and to learn to say like my, my goal is to be at ease. I want to train my heart and my mind to be at ease even when I'm horny, even when I'm lonely, even when I'm hungry, even when I'm bored uh, rather than always filling up uh, that kind of like, I'm bored, I got to do something. I'm hungry, I got to eat. I'm horny, I've got to. You don't have to do anything. So often the mind uh, is telling us we need to do something. <laughs> um, so much to be learned from abstinence, periods, practices of renunciation and abstinence. And that's much of what the um, teachings around the precepts are, the five precepts that I wanted to get into tonight, um, you know, are five areas of renunciation. And this is for householders, for us. This is, the, the monks have hundreds of practices of renunciation. Uh, and the Buddha said, you know, for, for you guys, <laughs> uh, just five. I'm going to keep it really simple. Not a high level of renunciation, just five areas of your life to 
practice some discipline, some abstinence, some renunciation. Now, I think that the frame that's important here, you know, what I was talking about being bored, horny, hungry, lonely, uh, that's not so much about karma. That's much more about, because, you know, there's not any negative karma in sex, if it's appropriate. Uh, there's not any negative karma in food unless it becomes an addiction and there's something compulsive about it. There's not any negative karma in uh, uh, entertainment, you know. There's, But the precepts are all framed on abstaining from actions that create negative karma for us. Um, if you are aware, if you remember, the first factor of the Eightfold Path, when the Buddha says, here's the path, to awakening, the first thing he says that we have to understand is the truth of karma. We have to know that cause and effect are reality. It's not an idea, it's not a philosophy, it's not a perspective or opinion. It is a truth that we are living and breathing, that we are totally responsible for all of our volitional actions and all of our volitional meaning intentional on purpose, actions have a consequence, have an outcome, have a, what we call a karmic fruit. And all of the ones that are classified as negative or unwholesome uh, create negative karma for us, a momentum towards suffering, towards unhappiness. And all of the positive, wholesome, you know, and so this is simply classified as, you know, like kindness and generosity and love and compassion and forgiveness and friendliness, you know, it's all the positive, you know, like do that, do more of that, <laughs> more kindness, more compassion, more generosity, like more positive karma in our lives, more service, more uh, patience with annoying people. <laughs> annoying, difficult situations, all of that creating karmic momentum in the direction we want to go. But all of the, um, you know, judgment and anger and violence and uh, dishonesty and causing negative karma for us. So the Buddha says five areas of renunciation for your karma. If you want to get free from the causes of suffering, here's five ways that we cause suffering to ourselves and others. He said, first of all, um, abstain from murder. Be disciplined and don't murder. Don't intentionally kill, take life, murder, destroy any other living being. So reflect for a moment. I was curious about this. I was reflecting for myself. When was the last time you murdered any living being? including ants, including cockroaches, including mosquitoes. 
When was the last time? I'm just reflecting for a moment. Now, many of you maybe aren't, um, you know, like you like to kill spiders, like spiders are scary, so I murder them. Or, you know, mosquitoes are annoying, so I murder them. Uh, and you believe that that's good and fine and it's part of what you, how you live your life. You like to, you think it's, you know, it's, it's just part of, it's, nor, it's pretty normal in our culture to murder insects, small living beings. Or maybe some of you are hunters or fisher people or, um, and you also believe in killing. Um, the Buddhist, you know, teaching is because of the karma, uh, the negativity that goes into the, the hatred uh, that goes into killing and murdering, um, the lack of compassion, the lack of empathy for the other life forms, he says, well, this is something that we abstain from. It's negative karmic uh, activity and we abstain from it. I was looking at this translation, I liked it. It said, um, someone avoids the killing of living beings and abstains from it without a stick or sword, conscientious, full of sympathy. One is desirous of the welfare of all living beings. So I like the way that it's framed that being conscientious, being uh, attuned, to the fact that all living beings have a survival instinct. Stephen Batchelor um, put it like this in one of his books. He said, um, every living being has that same feeling that you and I have, which is please don't hurt me. Whether or not it's a conscious thought like we have in our human brains, or it's just a survival instinct that the um, insect has, or the spider has, or the, you know, animal has, or the hurt humans, you know, we all have this feeling of, please don't hurt me, please don't kill me, I want to exist, I want to survive, please don't murder me. Desirous of the welfare, we ended the meditation tonight with just a little bit of loving kindness, and this is one of the core Buddhist practices, develop loving kindness towards all living beings, not just humans. Humans are tough. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people who um, care a lot more about animals than humans. You know, all, all of these, uh, you know, kind of vegan animal warriors who are like, save the animals, fuck the humans. <laughs> you can kill the people, just stop killing the animals. Um, but of course, you know, the Buddha has this encouragement to us to awaken that quality of uh, empathy and compassion for all living beings. And so it's a great practice to abstain from killing. And to the next time you, you know, have some insects that are annoying you, um, to actually use it as a practice of like, okay, I'm just gonna be annoyed by this mosquito, or uh, I'm gonna do a, a kind of a nonviolent removal of this spider from the bathtub or whatever it is, you know, the cup and the paper and the take it outside. And 
out of compassion and out of uh, concern for our own karma. The, there's two precepts about honesty. So on some level, a commitment to nonviolence, and we can each look at like, well, where's my commitment to, you know, how is your commitment to nonviolence? You know, technically this is only about killing. Often the question comes up around vegetarianism. Um, many people in our Sangha, uh, in Buddhism and in the world choose to abstain from participating in any kind of meat eating because of the participation in killing entailed in, in eating meat. There's some participation there. The, you know, murder economy of animals. You can choose for yourself whether or not you choose to be vegetarian. It's not a Buddhist precept. There's nowhere in early Buddhism where he says uh, not to eat meat. Um, but he does say not to kill the animal. And it's a little bit of a weird, you know, uh, I don't know if it's hypocritical or uh, but it's a, it's a little confusing where he's saying like, for sure, do not kill. But if someone else kills it um, and they offer it to you, it's okay to eat it. And this was the precept for the nuns and the monks and that they were not vegetarians. The Buddha himself was not a vegetarian, um, but he was totally committed to nonviolence and to not killing. There's one place in the teachings when he actually says to the monks and nuns because um, they ask this question like, hey you're teaching us about not killing but we're going on alms round we're out begging for lunch uh, and sometimes people offer us food or offer us meat is it okay to eat meat and the buddha says yeah yeah of course it's okay to eat meat if that's what's being eaten and that's what they're offering to you then it's okay to receive it and you can eat it he says unless you know that they killed that animal, they murdered that animal just for you. If they have murdered that animal just for you, then actually you need to um, not accept it. And you need to let them know that you can't directly participate in killing in that way. You can't, you'd be part of the karma if it was killed specifically for you. And it's part of the monks and nuns, the monastic precept. Um, So just reflecting on your, uh, your relationship to murder. And now one last thing about this precept. I think it's also important for us all to accept that it's impossible to exist, to live without killing. And so again, a reminder that it's about intentional killing. Now, even the vegan diet uh, is going to kill not only the, the plants, which are considered non-sentient, um, but also insects are going to be killed in plant uh, cultivation and harvesting. Um, earthworms are going to be killed in you know, organic farming. And there's going to be death as part of every uh, life. Um, and I often, like, I just got back, I was up uh, in with my 
mom who's here tonight with us and, and family up in Santa Cruz for Thanksgiving. And, you know, then driving home in this supposed to be a five hour drive. It was like an eight hour drive yesterday. You, you never get out of your car after a road trip and there's just hundreds and hundreds of insects on the, uh, you know, lights and windshield. And, and it was just like a, it was like a, it's like a slaughter. You get out and you're like, wow, like just going somewhere, just driving down the street, just, I just killed, I just unintentionally killed hundreds of living beings, maybe thousands. And from a Buddhist perspective, there's no karma in that kind of unintentional killing. It's only when we're doing it intentionally and out of some um, hatred or some lack of, of compassion. So I hope that makes sense. And we can come back to discussion about it. So the, the second two places are about honesty. Um, and it's basically abstaining from lying and abstaining from stealing. Uh, last week, we talked about the importance of being careful with our communication and the power of our communication and the importance of honesty and all of the different levels of right speech, wise communication. And so this is one of the places where not only does the Buddha give a whole uh, factor of the path to the importance of our how we communicate with each other, but he then mentions it again in how we act because honesty uh, of speech and of, of deed, of action uh, is so important and is so, I think maybe common way that we create suffering for ourselves by not living a life of rigorous honesty, taking that which is not offered or speaking that which is not true. Um, the second noble truth where the Buddha explains and when we come to understand the cause of suffering, the cause of suffering is craving, repetitive craving. And I think very often, I know in my early life, uh, very often that craving uh, was satisfied by dishonest means. I would lie about it. I would steal it. I would exaggerate. I would minimize. And so I, I feel it feels like this is a, uh, a pretty common way that we create suffering for ourselves. Uh, I don't know if this is true for all kids, but I think it is that like there's a, just a tendency for children to lie, to make stuff up, to, um, you know, to be like, no, no. Like, did you just eat a cookie? No, I didn't eat a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a, just a sort of a human impulse to dishonesty. I don't know if that's true or not, but it feels true. Certainly it was true in my own difficult childhood. Um, but I also see it true with my children who are not having a very difficult childhood, I don't think. Um, but I still see that sort of lack of rigorous honesty that seems to be a bit natural to people. So the Buddha is pointing to... This is a discipline. This is a renunciation. Uh, it's often easier to omit the truth or exaggerate or minimize the truth. But out of discipline, um, out of concern for our karma, out of commitment to being in integrity, tell the truth. Speak the truth in the appropriate way at the appropriate time. 
what a huge practice. What a, you know, this, so these first, you know, three of the five precepts uh, about renunciation of violence and murdering and renunciation of theft. Um, and think about, you know, like with humility, I hope, hope people don't go into shame when I ask them to think about last time they killed intentionally, or I think it's important just for us to, to reflect on, oh, when, was, when was the last time I stole something? We're just reflecting on, well, you know, when was the last time I took something that I shouldn't have really taken? And, and maybe it was something big, like you did some shoplifting or you, you know, I don't know, you robbed a bank or something, uh, but probably it was something small. Probably it's, it's um, you know, something where it's, I always, the, the, it's, maybe it's a stupid example, I've been using it for years, but that, like when you're at the coffee shop and, you know, you take some extra sugars for later, you take some extra, I don't know, napkins for later, you take some extra I was at a restaurant the other day and I asked uh, the person for some napkins and she said, how many? <laughs> I was like, I was like uh, five, <laughs> I need five napkins. And she like counted them out, one, two, three, four. Okay, there's your five napkins. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and just as a reminder of like, actually those are not, those are to be used to, for your hands and mouth while you're dining in this establishment. Those aren't to be taken home. We're not giving away free toilet paper. We're not giving away free uh, tissue for later. We are providing you with what you need at the time. Here's the sugar for the coffee you're drinking right now, not for later. Here's the tissues for now. Just reflecting on how we sometimes help ourselves to things that aren't really offered. I remember when I was going on my first um, trip to Asia, I was working in a hospital at the time and uh, somebody who was giving me advice about traveling, he's like, he's like in India, one of the nice things to give away are good ink pens to the kids and school kids and stuff. And, and I, I was working at the hospital and I remember just stealing and we had all of these you know bags of ink pens in the laboratory where i was working i remember just stealing all of these pens to take on my buddhist pilgrimage to give to children <laughs> and, and you're not really thinking about it at the time but then in retrospect being like wow that was i just totally ripped off my work uh and somehow justified it to go on my buddhist pilgrimage to you know give things to kids in in asia um So just reflecting on like, where do we walk the line around honesty, around what's offered and what's not offered? The um, third precept is about sex. The translation here says, one avoids unlawful sexual intercourse and abstains from it. One has no intercourse with such persons as are still under the protection of father, mother, brother, sister, or relatives. So um, I think about that as 
too young, right? Um, you know, kind of that there's an age appropriateness. Um, and of course, this, there's a whole cultural thing here around uh, under the protection of your family. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that translates into our culture, but I, I, I would personally um, have some ethic around age appropriateness. Is it, is it age, age appropriate? Nor with married people. So um, this clear teaching around not engaging in affairs, not um, engaging in the dishonesty of um, not only and, and not only us not cheating on our partners, but not engaging with people who are cheating on their partners, and that there's negative karma in that that we're in, engaging in, and so that renunciation of uh, not with married people, nor with and uh, this is you know, very male centric says, nor with female convicts. So, <laughs> um, but it could be male convicts also, ladies don't have sex with male convicts. And I think that the cultural uh, or, you know, whatever your uh, sexual orientation is, um, I think that the context of this is more around uh, indentured servants and uh, people who uh, maybe are being kind of uh, uh, human trafficking. Um, you know, that's kind of not engaging in, you know, there, there's some, some teachings around um, prostitution in the, from the Buddha. And I've had some conversations with some people in the Sangha who are um, kind of feminist uh, sex worker rights and um, you know one of our friends who has a slogan sex work is work and um, who's, who says you know this buddhist perspective around prostitution as not um, you know as unethical is that this is sort of a misogynistic perspective uh, and my reflection was that my sense of the buddha's teaching is that um, back then and, and to this day in, in many circumstances, it's not actually a choice. It's not a feminist choice. It's uh, convicts, it's, it's um, uh, indentured servants, it's slavery um, rather than a kind of modern Western uh, feminist choice to engage in, in those behavior, in those um, livelihoods. So the Buddha here says, um, you know, don't cheat. Um, and lastly, with, uh, how do you say this word? Betrothed girls or, or, or men. So uh, even if they're not married, there's this, what's this strange? I've never understood this incredibly strange tradition. I don't even know if it's real or if it's just like in the movies, but I think it's real on some level of people who are betrothed, which means engaged, right? Kind of um, of going to like bachelor parties or bachelor art parties and then engaging sexually um, with other people <laughs> because they're about to get married. And it's like, well, we're not married yet. We're just betrothed. So we're going to go and uh, be unethical and dishonest and uh, create some karma for ourselves right before we get married. 
And so, you know, this is also included in this precept of uh, just because you're not married, if you're committed, you're committed. And um, if you're betrothed, you're betrothed. <laughs> and to not engage. Uh... Lastly, so let me just, I want to say a couple more things about sex. I was talking about earlier about what a good practice I think it is to um, be with our sexual energy without satisfying it. I, um, I've spent a couple different periods um, of celibacy in my adult life where I intentionally had six months one time and almost two years another time where I just took a, a break from sexual activity. Uh, and there's so much to learn from uh, being with desire, horniness, uh, and not satisfying it, just letting it arise and pass and just being with it as sensation and thought and uh, emotion that can come around with it, the loneliness that can be uh, underneath it or can be uh, avoided through sexual activity. So something, you know, really for us to, I guess what partially what I want to say is to make sexuality a central part of our Dharma practice, to not see it as something separate and to not like hear this precept of like, well, as long as I don't, uh, you know, cheat or, you know, uh, sleep with inappropriate people, uh, then it's all okay. And it is all okay. And the Buddha is very liberal around uh, these teachings around sexuality. I think he was very open-minded and, you know, the precept is basically consenting appropriate adults, you know, not a lot of judgment around sexuality. But it's such a central energy in our human experience. I just want to deeply encourage all of us to turn towards it with the non-judgmental present time investigative awareness to be mindful and tuned into our desires and our fears and our you know kinks or our hang-ups or our all of it as part of our spiritual practice that sexuality is part of our being and it's part of our sexual practice uh, our spiritual practice our awakening um hope that makes sense. Makes sense to me. I've been um, told over and over by people who've been studying Buddhism for a long time that like they never hear Dharma teachers talk about sex. And I think I don't talk about it all that much either, but I, I want to talk about it. I want, to, I want it to be a central part of our um, teaching. And this is one of the only places where the Buddha uh, talks about uh, householders and, and sexuality. Lastly, and perhaps most controversially, is the fifth precept. You know, so number one is not killing. Number two is not uh, stealing. Number three is not having sex with people you shouldn't have, be having sex with. Number four is um, not lying. Number five is abstaining from drugs and alcohol, being sober. 
period. <laughs> this is the teaching of the Buddha. Uh, now, here's what's interesting. The first four, it's obvious, are about our karma, right? You kill, bad karma. You lie, bad karma. Sleeping with people you shouldn't be, bad karma. Uh, stealing, bad karma. How does drugs and alcohol affect our karma? I would say probably doesn't much depending on your relationship. You know, so many of our community were our recovering addicts and, and alcoholics. And um, so for sure, there's a stronger necessity for us to be uh, abstinent. And, um, but this is the Buddha's teaching for everyone who's interested in this path to awakening, right? This is part of the core teachings of if you want to get free, here's what you got to do. And over and over in the teachings, he says, you got to be sober to get free. That intoxication and liberation don't mix. <laughs> don't, uh, you know, the intoxication won't take you to the freedom that you're seeking. Now, I want to say a couple things about... Um, This certainly doesn't mean, uh, I want to frame this as uh, free from recreational drug and alcohol use. It doesn't mean that we can't take medication, that we can't, you know, when you're, you know, when you need, uh, you know, because there are some medications like, you know, opiates, painkillers or something that sometimes are appropriate. And it's not like, well, I'm a Buddhist, I can't take that because although it's going to take away my pain, it's also going to get me a little bit high. Um, it's, he, that's not the teaching. The teaching is that we abstain from doing it recreationally. That there's no place in um, the teachings where it's uh, okay to have a drink of alcohol just for fun or weed or pills or psychedelics or any of that. He's quite clear. Now, some have proposed, and I'm not sure exactly why this is, but some have proposed that it's because two things. One, if you've had a drink or are inebriated, intoxicated, or uh, you know, altered in some way, you're more likely to break one of the four, first four precepts. When you're high, when you're intoxicated, more likely to lie, steal, cheat, kill. <laughs> it's just more likely to happen when you're not sober. So stay sober so that you can be more careful with your actions and your speech and your sexuality. This is one of the things. My feeling is that this makes perfect sense because we are trying to be awake. The whole path, mindfulness, uh, uh, compassion, forgiveness, the whole path is trying to wake up. Trying to wake up, which to me means to see reality as it is and respond appropriately to reality. To see the pain and learn to care about the pain. 
to see the joy and learn to appreciate the joy, to see the suffering and have compassion for the suffering. Now, as soon as we take drugs, alcohol is just another drug, we're no longer seeing clearly. We're numbing, we're altering, we're avoiding. Isn't it why most of the time people drink and use anyways to create some false pleasure and avoid some boredom or discomfort or, you know, people come home from work and they take a drink because they were stressed out, hard day at work. I'm going to reward myself by checking out, by avoiding reality. So all of the Buddha's teachings are about let's face reality. It's ugly. It's painful. (laughs) It's difficult. Let's look it directly in the eye and see it clearly and learn to meet it with compassion. So in that way, it makes perfect sense that, of course, the Buddha taught, um, of course, there's no place in, in the Buddha's teachings for drug and alcohol use. Some of many, most of my teachers, my father and Cornfield and most of my teachers, all of kind of, I think almost all of the non-monastic teachers because they're old hippies, stoner, psychedelic cowboys. They all sort of were like, you know, that fifth precepts kind of optional (laughs) as they're like, you know, smoking weed and meditating and psychedelics and all of that. Uh, Like a lot of that generation um, chose to disregard the fifth precept. And um, I have mixed feelings about it. On some level, I feel like, well, they, you know, the Dharma, they still became kinder and more compassionate and wiser people, even though they weren't sober all of the time. Um, Even though they weren't seeing life clearly and they were self-medicating and, you know, seeking altered states forget who it was, a couple of guys, a couple of those old first generation, I think it was maybe Danny Goleman and um, uh, maybe it was Fields. Uh, They wrote a book a a few years ago called uh, Altered Traits. And part of the book, they're talking about how they admitted that like coming into meditation in the 60s, they were all looking for altered states, whether it was through LSD or psilocybin or, you know, uh, whatever, ketamine, go, you know, K-holes, like they were just looking for like the altered state. And then they came to meditation, Ram Dass and the rest of them saying like, well, can we create these altered states through meditation? And these guys were saying, Richie Davidson, thanks, Richard. <laughs> um, And these guys ended up saying, you know, now here we are 50 years into our meditation practice and we realized the altered states thing was a complete dead end. That what we're really looking for was altered, how to alter our traits, not how to escape reality, but how to embody reality with more kindness, with more wisdom, with more friendliness towards all living beings. And um, drugs and alcohol don't help us do that, actually. They just help us avoid. So some of my thoughts about um, the importance of the five precepts, this is referred to as sila, uh, Buddhist ethics, um, to train ourselves to abstain from killing and lying and stealing 
and sexual misconduct and intoxicants. Now, you don't have to be perfect, but you can try. <laughs> it's worth the effort to try to be careful with our speech, with our actions, with our sexuality, with our, you know, uh, perhaps the only, I wanna say maybe the only precept you can do perfectly is the fifth, is really abstain. But you can also perfectly not lie if you're really careful. You can perfectly not steal, not take anything that's not offered. You can perfectly abstain from sexual misconduct. Um, but the reality is uh, most likely you will find yourselves, we will find ourselves exaggerating or minimizing or engaging in some of these activities. And so these aren't commandments. These are training practices. These are uh, areas to put our attention on, to commit to being more mindful around speech and more mindful around sexuality and, and mindful uh, around uh, drugs and alcohol and, and uh, abstaining from that. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. I was trying to diss my teachers. Uh, um, that they, like a lot of the, that generation would say like, well, this one really means to find moderation, that it's okay to have, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol in moderation. Um, and um, which just makes no sense. Like the first four are don't kill. Like what if all of them were in moderation? Like, you know, like these teachers that want to say like, no, no, alcohol is okay in moderation or, uh, you know, it's okay. Like, well, is murdering okay in moderation? How about sexual, uh, sexual misconduct? Is that okay in moderation? How about stealing? Can I steal in a balanced way? <laughs> you know, it just makes no sense to say that the Buddha meant this one in moderation. All of these precepts are with the intention of abstinence with refraining, with renouncing. Um, okay, that's what I have to say. And I'm open to your questions, comments. I see a couple coming through. What are your questions about these precepts? There was a question earlier about um, why is the practice started that monks do not eat after 12? How did that fit into the larger notions of the path? I'll start with that question. That question, um, that one is about moderation. You know, the Buddha before his awakening had been so extreme about renunciation um, it was, you know, asceticism, uh, starvation, fasting, um, thinking that any engagement in pleasant activities was uh, something we were going to become attached to. And he went too far over there to the point where he said, I wasn't eating for days and weeks and my body was, you know, dying. So he said, when I came to awakening, I realized 
that food's not the enemy, it's just in moderation. And that actually we don't need to eat and indulge in, you know, uh, just snacking all of the time, but that, uh, you know, the body needs fuel. And in his mind, uh, in his teachings, he said, you know, you can fuel up the body before noon, and then you can, you know, benefit from the practice of being hungry and letting the body burn off of all of the, you know, fuel that it has put in until the next day. And so he, you know, did this as a renunciation practice that he felt was a balanced practice. One big meal a day, just plenty of gas in the tank. And I don't know if you've, anybody's ever tried this. I have uh, one time for three months, I only ate one, you know, just, I didn't eat anything after midday on a long retreat I was on. And it's really amazing. I mean, I've done it a lot of different times, but it's really amazing because as it turns out, hunger is so psychological. If I think I'm getting dinner and I don't get dinner, I'm starving. But if I've decided no dinner, it's not that bad. If my mind is around, I'm only eating lunch for the next three months. The hunger pains are there. There's some sensations around hunger, but it's not that bad. So anyways, it was the Buddha's teachings of middle way. Uh, other question here about is tobacco included in the fifth precept? It's not for whatever reason, um, there are, I would say, three allowable intoxicants. Caffeine, sugar, and nicotine, which are all drugs. <laughs> but for um, my sense is maybe the reason that the Buddha and, and Buddhists uh, engage in these is because um, they're not so uh, altering. Uh, nicotine doesn't really alter one's uh, perspective. Uh, sugar could. I mean, of course, it comes around to, to moderation. If you eat enough sugar, you're going to be out of your fucking head. If you drink enough caffeine, you're going to be out of your head, right? Um, but for whatever, but you have to really try. <laughs> It's not like alcohol where just a little bit of alcohol really alters you. You got to have a lot of caffeine to alter your sense of reality or a lot of sugar to alter your sense of reality. I guess maybe depending on how sensitive you are to those substances. Um, question about polyamory. What are your thoughts to, on polyamory in regards to not engaging in sex with married folks? If all parties are engaging in honest and consensual acts, would it still create bad karma? I don't think so. I think that it's all about the level of commitment. And you know, there's this sort of assumption that marriage is monogamy. And so all of the stuff about married people is a monogamous centric perspective. The spirit of the teaching is honesty. And so if you're honestly in an open, polyamorous, polygamous uh, relationship, uh, ethical non-monogamy, then uh, I don't think there's any 
the karma comes in when there's dishonesty about it. So uh, I think that, uh, hope that makes sense. Comment about psychedelics with, uh, with the Buddha just not having access to LSD shrooms, etc. Isn't it possible that it's a factor that's just not accounted for in his teachings? Psychedelics do offer a perspective change, which can be beneficial. Um, I could say, yeah, sure, maybe it's not. It wasn't. Um, there must have been some psychedelics around India 2,600 years ago. Um, uh, and the Buddha did just kind of classify it as a intoxicant. Um, but I agree that it, uh, you know, that last part of your comment around psychedelics offer a perspective change, which can be beneficial. Um, I know that that's true for a lot of people. And um, Ramdas used to say, you know, psychedelics will open the doors of perception for you, but you can't keep using psychedelics to open those doors. Then you got to get your ass on the meditation cushion and open it naturally in an unadulterated way. And so that, that tends to be my perspective. I took lots of psychedelics, um, you know, but it's really meditation that helps us see reality clearly and actually um, embody and actually um, sort of download the wisdom that often those psychedelic trips don't really, uh, I guess the word I'm looking for is integrated. Uh, my, my sense is that often it's quite hard to integrate the perceptions that people have in those altered psychedelic states. Okay, a couple more. Question on creating negative karma. In the Theravadan tradition, is someone who has created negative karma, are they stuck with the stains of these actions for all of this life and the next? What about purification practices? Can one reduce or eliminate the effects of breaking precepts? So the answer is um, no, of course we're not stuck with it that we are constantly uh, sort of juggling our karma. Um, and the Theravadan perspective is that it is possible to purify all of our karma in this lifetime. That it doesn't, we don't have to go on to future lives, all of that. You know, the Buddha was really clear that liberation, the potential for awakening for freedom in this lifetime is available to everyone that's willing to meditate and practice renunciation and follow this path. The extreme example uh, is of Angulimala, the serial killer, who'd murdered a whole bunch of people and was able to purify the karma of all of that violence in one lifetime. He didn't have to come back for eons of reincarnations. He became an arahant, an enlightened being at the end of that life where he had killed a whole bunch of people. And so that's the sort of, it might be an archetypal story more than a true story, but maybe it's true. I don't know, I wasn't there. But I hope that makes sense, Richard, that for sure we can reduce and eliminate the effects of breaking precepts by acts of kindness, acts of generosity, acts of service, by practicing renunciation. Um, you know, there's a whole, you know, that, that 
where I started tonight about practicing being bored, practicing being lonely, practicing being hungry, being horny. That's also the, the discipline, the karmic benefits of renunciation uh, are huge. Okay, last one. Oh, David, I was, uh, there was a, it says, if there is a level of sexual moderation and murder moderation, why not drug moderation? Um, I don't know if what the, exactly what the question is. I was joking when I talked about murdering in moderation. <laughs> um, the precept is to abstain from murdering, abstain from sexual misconduct, abstain from lying and stealing, and abstain from drug and alcohol use. Be sober, get free. Jeff, um, Jeff was asking if I'm able to cite a specific source where the green light is given on those substances. I am not able to. Um, I could ask somebody who uh, knows the suttas better than me and, and would be able to translate. My sense is that maybe actually there's not a um, sutta-based um, green light on those substances, that it's more of a tradition, uh, Theravadan tradition. Um, green light on them. Um, I assume maybe you're asking because you want to classify them with, with other drugs and alcohol. And maybe that is more wise. I remember the first time I went to Thailand uh, and I saw monks smoking cigarettes. And then in Burma, I saw monks smoking cigars. And I can remember just being like, wait a minute, that has to be against the rules. <laughs> These guys are just smoking, fucking hanging out, smoking cigars. No way. And, you know, in the Theravadan tradition, they're like, yeah, it's not against the precepts. I'm told that Ajahn Chah, who's one of my favorite teachers, Ajahn Amaro's teacher and Cornfield's teacher, that when most of the Westerners first came to sit with Ajahn Chah, he was smoking cigarettes. And, the, the, you know, Westerners, we have this like, wait a minute, like you're spiritual, you can't smoke cigarettes. And uh, he's like, okay, well, I'll quit then. <laughs> And he, and he, and he quit. He, but then some of the stories are, but occasionally you might catch him off in the jungle having a quick one. <laughs> and I, I like that story just to kind of humanize the, the great teachers. Okay, there's some more questions, but I didn't get to them and we're out of time. Thank you for your reflection on uh, these teachings tonight. Uh, you don't have to practice the precepts unless you want to. These are the Buddha's teachings. If you choose to apply them to your life, uh, I'm very happy for you. Uh, if you don't choose to apply them to your life, that's fine too. You're always welcome to be with us and uh, you know, take what you like and leave the rest, all of that. So, um, oh God, I'm sorry. There's a bunch of questions I didn't get to. But there is, um, in the uh, notes in the chat box, there is um, a link to make donations. Please offer some donations to Against the Stream. This class is done by donation. Since I'm not open, nobody's here to make donations. You are the Sangha. 
this meditation center, my livelihood, the nonprofit, all supported by your generosity. If you can afford a 10 or 15 or $20 donation, there's the link there and you could uh, make a donation then. So thank you uh, there on the website. Thank you for doing that. I think that's it. Um, see you next week. May any goodness that comes from our practice tonight be shared outward in all directions. May each one of us get free and stay free. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.